Okay, good morning, one and all. My name is Adrian, if you don't know me, and I'll be taking us through uh, the next part of our gathering. Um, and in a moment, we will get to look at uh, the next part in our series, which will be entitled Formed in Prayer. But before we get that, I just uh, saw that uh, a couple of people, a family, have sneaked in at the back. It's the first time they're with us uh, with their new baby girl called Naomi, and that is Matt, and Kath Wood is somewhere. But Matt, it's fantastic to see you. Take a stand for a brilliant... Um, there's a push here next to you, which I'm assuming... A, a, she's in there. Brilliant. Um, just wanted to make sure you just hadn't left her somewhere else, but I'm assuming she is in there. Um, as, hey! <laughs> the true warrior of the whole escapade. Um, as I said, we're in this series, Formed in Prayer, where we're looking at uh, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray uh, in order that we understand more of who God is and more of who we are. But... Before we get into that, I just want to start with a question, and that is, what is your name? Now, at this point, I don't expect you to just suddenly, where you are, shout out your name, but my guess is that for every single one of us, we've asked this question at some point. Because whenever you meet someone for the first time, generally, I think the, the first thing we ask is, what's your name? Because in that moment of saying, what's your name, it's saying, actually, I want to know you. I want to suddenly realize that you're not just another human being, you're someone who's named, who has a personality, who is an individual, who therefore matters. See, I know for me growing up, when I was a kid, um, it was also linked with then, when you said what your name was, it was then like, what does your name mean? And so I remember, um, because it was the age I am, that you didn't look on Google, rather you had to go some, to something called a library. And um, in the library, they had something called books. And those books, there were some sections which were called reference books, which were ones that you could only look at, you could never take out. And you go to a reference book, and one of those was names and their meanings. And I remember going with some of my friends, and we'd just, it just shows you the kind of kid I was, isn't it, man? <laughs> man, living the high life. What did you do today? I hung out with my mates in the library and looked up what our names meant. Um, so there we are, opening the book, seeing what our names mean, and each of them goes through, and I don't know, their names meant things like warrior and rock and king of the world, which well, it seemed that way. Then it gets to mine, Adrian, I open it up and it says, of no real meaning. <laughs> I mean, like, like, how does that work? Man, it was bad enough being a kid of the 80s. I grew up with the name Adrian, which meant that you continuously were either referred to as a woman in Rocky films, where people thought it was original to come up to you and go, Adrian, and so you'd never heard it before. Or that someone had decided to write a book about a geeky, nerdy kid called Adrian Mole, aged 13 and three quarters, and so it was bad enough. The cards were stacked against me. Adrian, nerdy, geeky kid, now of no true meaning. But you see, when we do introduce, say, what's your name, we're not expecting anything. Oh, Richard, Richard, ruler of others. We don't think that. We actually associate and say, oh, right, your name's Richard. I now know that about you. But what happens is we then think, I know lots of other Richards. Or I know lots of other Sarahs. Or I know lots of other Ruths. What is it about you that defines you to me to remember, oh, you're that Ruth. Oh, you're that Richard. You're that Sarah. You're that Mike. And suddenly we realize that the name that we've given and heard that someone has, we then start to link with characteristics about who they are. Because reality is, I may be Adrian of no meaning, 
But reality is that when people talk about me, I know they refer to me in different ways. Some of those are good, some of those are pretty bad. But it's like, hey, hey, do you know Adrian? Oh, which one? Well, there's only like the one, you know, the woman, Rocky. Then there's Adrian Mole. And then, you know, the other one, Adrian Hurst. Who? who? Oh, oh, that one, the guy who seems to wear clothes that he shouldn't do. You know, they should be worn by people who are about 10 to 15 years younger. You know that one? Or, I don't know, the one whose hair seems to be way too old for his age. Um, that one, oh, yeah, yeah. I, and so you get to know that the name is an invitation to be known, but it's also not only to be known just simply by a name, but also it comes with it some characteristics, some associations of who that person is. And what we're going to discover in the prayer that Jesus teaches us is that actually there's a name that is wanting to be known, a name that as we get to know it is one that is calling us to see that it's a name worthy of worship. We're going to see that Jesus longs for us to see that having understood there's a starting point, which we'll look at in a moment, there's then this call to worship one because of who he is. So to start off, I want to just quickly kind of go through the prayer that we're looking at. And we're going to be doing this week in, week out, just because it just keeps helping us set it in context of understanding that what Jesus is doing here isn't kind of giving us something to say in a parrot fashion, in repetition continuously, but it becomes this pattern, this way of understanding more of who God is, more of who we are. So Jesus says, this then is how you should pray. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. See, last week we saw that Jesus gives us a starting point. A starting point in how we are to pray. A starting point that is all about relationship. A starting point of relationship that is all about, as we've celebrated in worship today, our Father in heaven. I don't know about you, but when Colin gave that invitation of saying, hey, who wants to receive more of the Father's love and goodness today? I was like, man, I want some in that. I'm in. I want more. Why? Because of everything we looked at last week. Our starting point of the kind of father we have, who is the father in heaven, where he rules and reigns. He's a father who's patient, forgiving, restorative, compassionate, comforting, good, perfect. He blesses, he chooses us, disciplines us, provides for us, is merciful and powerful. That's the father we looked at last week. In a nutshell, he is good. And from that starting point, Jesus then says, hey, this is the father that you approach. This is the father that you're now in relationship with. This is the God that you get to know. That from that place of relationship, you now need to understand there's a name that's worthy of worship. So we could potentially think, oh no, right, we've got the father, now get the shopping list out. Father, this is what I need. Jesus says, no, you need to get everything in perspective. You need to put everything in its rightful place so you understand that you come before a father like that was spoken of in the story of the prodigal son in worship, the father who lovingly, longingly is continuously looking towards us, longing to meet with us. And then from that place of relationship, it isn't then I need, it's rather I get to see more of who you are. 
And in seeing who you are, it causes me to have perspective that then will lead me to think, I want you to be not only the center of my life, the one that I cause my heart to be before, the one that I give my heart for in worship, but the whole of the cosmos. Because Jesus says, the next part is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name, if we go to the next slide, Tim Keller, who's a pastor and a kind of unbelievable writer and communicator, he says this, to hallow, because I don't know about you, I don't use the word hallow much in my vocabulary. Maybe you do, I don't go around going, I hallow that. I don't use it, but out of all of the different ways that words are used and the commentator, the interpreters of the original Greek are trying to kind of grapple and say, what's the best word that we can use to get hold of in our language what this looks like? They just keep coming back to this one. Because it doesn't seem to be another one that does it justice. It is to hallow. And Tim Keller says this, to hallow is to treat as absolutely sacred and ultimate Jesus says, you are to treat this name as absolutely sacred and ultimate. And as you do that, that will only ever cause us then to say, we give everything of who we are towards the name. What is the name then? Well, we can look at it and say, well, it's everything that we looked at the other, last week on respect to who this God is as father. But I want to give us another story as well today. Another story that is a hallowed story. A hallowed story that we discover in the Old Testament, the bit that's pre-Jesus coming to live, to die and rise again. And it's a story that we find that involves like a hero of the faith, a guy called Moses, where he encounters God in Exodus chapter three at a burning bush. See, what we have here is that Moses is part of God's people, Israel. But people of Israel at this point are, are actually in slavery, in exile, they're not in the land that God has for them. They're not living in all the good of what God has got for them. They're rather enslaved by the Egyptian empire. And Moses saw, though he'd grown up and been protected and lived in the palace associated with the center of Egypt, royalty, he kind of still knew that he was part of these people that were oppressed. And he wanted everything he could do, could do to kind of help free them. And so he used his own strength at one point and actually killed someone killed one of the slave owners. And what it caused the people to say is, hey, you're no different to them. We don't want anything to do with you. And so Moses then fled. And in hiding, got married, started to learn more of who God is. And in this moment, he, we find that he's shepherding some sheep. And suddenly, as he's shepherding, he sees this bush that's on fire. And yet it's not being consumed. And he thinks, as any one of us would, I wonder what's going on there. And so we're told that he then starts to make his way towards the bush, and as he gets there, suddenly God sees him. is isn't that God hadn't seen him at that point. It's that God knows that he's approaching and therefore is coming to meet with him, like the father and the prodigal son rushes to meet. As he meets Moses, he just simply firstly says this, Moses, this is sacred. This moment now is like no other. Take off your shoes. Take off your shoes, just like if you go into someone's house. I don't know if you do this, and culturally we do this here. Other cultures would do it as well. There's this moment of saying, do you know what? What's here is different to what's outside. I want to make this moment different. How am I going to do that is I want to show a sign of honor and respect by taking my shoes off. 
And outside, suddenly, this moment becomes one where Moses says, this is different to any other moment. I want to honor and respect this moment. And God says, take off your shoes. And then we're told that Moses then approaches the bush. And God starts to speak to him and says, hey, I'm going to send you to your people in order that you can rescue them. And Moses says, great, but are they really going to listen to me? Who shall I say sends me? And this is what God then responds. If we go, Exodus 3, 13, 14. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and they say to them, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? Moses is saying, look, this is a new day, a new revelation. Like, how am I to reveal that this is from you? It's just not of my own making. How do I reveal that I truly know you? because I know your name. And then God said this to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And that we can think, okay, yeah, but he asked for a name. And God said, I am who I am. You know, that's one of those like cryptic kind of moments, isn't it? I am who I am. Wow. No, this is God revealing the wonder and the joy and the beauty and the majesty of who he is, how he's named. The words that are translated, I am who I am, actually in the original Hebrew is Yahweh. It can either be I am who I am or I will be who I will be. That in this moment, God is saying, this is my name. This is how I'm to be known. This is how I'm to be revealed. For the rest of the Old Testament, as Moses goes forward and says, I know who God is. He is named Yahweh. He's not any old God. He's Yahweh. That name Yahweh became too sacred. They couldn't actually say it. No one was allowed to say it. Rather, they'd use the word that we translate Lord, Adonai. You can't even say the name. And yet, what God was doing in naming who he is, I am who I am, is causing Moses and the people to understand more of who he is. Causing us now to understand more of who he is in order that we could see, yes, hallowed be your name because you are worthy of worship. Therefore, what is revealed then by the I am who I am? See, the I am who I am reveals one who wants to be known. You see, at this point you think, oh, you're just doing the same thing as last week. You gave us a load of characteristics and some Bible verses. This is your little trick now. No, no, this isn't that. This is a moment of me saying, what's the point of me listing what the I am who I am means? And you think, oh, Adrian said it, it must be true. Uh-uh, never a good thing. Now the point is in order that we can be equipped, each one of us, to have revealed through scripture the wonder of who the I am is. That we can grapple with this and say, all right, when God says, I am who I am, this is what it reveals of who God is. And the more and more we get hold of that, the more and more we realize that his name is worthy of all worship. So he is, the I am who I am reveals the God who wants to be known. We saw that, didn't it? When someone says their name, it's saying, I want you to know me. I'm not any old God, I'm the I am who I am. He's one who's revealed as is uncreated, who was and will be. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. Nothing else. God. Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, says God, who was and who is to come. Uncreated. 
He's one who is self-sufficient. John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. God is self-sufficient. He revealed is the one of the source of all. John 1, 3, through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. He's starting to capture, allow the vision to come of, oh, oh, this is why you are who you are. You are the I am who I am. Because you're the source of all. You're constant unchanging. We looked at this James 1.17. That he's the standard of all goodness. Again, James 1.17. He is forever loving. 1 John 4.16. God is love. It isn't God can be loving. No, no, God in his very nature, the I am who I am, is love. The origin of love is characterized, is enveloped by love because it's who he is. And he is with us, Matthew 1, 23, 28, 20. When Jesus comes in the earth, it's like, why? Why is this change? Oh, he's Emmanuel, which means God with us. As Jesus leaves the planet, says, oh, and I'll be with you always. The I am who I am reveals himself as one who's to be known, who's uncreated, self-sufficient, the source of all, constant and unchanging, the standard of all goodness, forever loving, and is with us. That's why his name is hallowed. But the thing is, it doesn't just reveal who the I am is, it also reminds us of who the I am is. Because we discover, we remember, hey, how does Jesus reveal who he is? John 8, 58. Very true, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Man, that was dynamite. It blew up. Everything, everyone was like, what? The only other person that said that is, it's the I am who I am. The one whose name we must not mention, in a good way. A little Harry Potter reference. Um, (laughs) Down with the kids. Um, <laughs> is it, everyone knew that. Adrian, you know the one. Um, that I am who I am. That Jesus suddenly in this moment, I am, points to that moment, a burning bush. It says, it is me now come in the frailty of humanity to reveal what? The one who is I am. In order that what? Through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he could cause you and I to live in the joy and satisfaction of the I am. Not as one whose name cannot be mentioned, not as one who cannot be approached, but rather as one who comes and embraces us and says, now all you knew of the I am, now you get to receive for yourselves. I am who I am for you. That's what I am does. Not abstract concept, not one who becomes more distant, but rather through Jesus, who is the I am. Through his life, death, and resurrection makes a way that each of us now can approach him with confidence, knowing, yes, he's Father, but knowing he is the great I am, which then shapes us. It forms us as we pray this way. I don't know how you found it this last week where the homework, literally from last week, somebody's saying, homework from a Sunday? Yeah, because that's how we want to change, isn't it? We want to keep pursuing more of who God is. Was what? Our starting point, our Father. 
to then say, hey, how are we going to own that more this week daily? I know for me, I don't know what it's been for you, for daily, every day I'm just waking up saying, God, I thank you, you're my father. I receive you as my father. I celebrate in you as my father. And from that moment, I go off on tangents of all the ways that he fathers me, thanking him for the ways that he's doing that. That now the same is hallowed be your name. As we discover the name, the I am who I am, we then say, we want this to form us. Not, oh yeah, hallowed be your name. Let's get on. Your kingdom come. No, no. As I hallow, as I give myself this, it starts to form me. It forms me in my perspective. My perspective of who God is. God is my father. But he's also the one at the center of everything. Revelation 4 has this moment where John, who has this vision of where God rules and reigns, goes into this throne room and he's just struck by, he cannot use the words to describe what he's seeing. But he says this in Revelation 4, 2 to 10, there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes, in front and behind. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. Yes, we have a father, but we have a father who is on the throne. And at the center of the whole of the cosmos is a much more beautiful throne than this but it's a throne that the rest of the cosmos, the rest of the universe continuously surrounds, understanding that he and he alone is worthy of worship. And John's caught up in this vision of creatures and beings and elders and things. There's all of this, and what's happening? The point isn't, how do we describe him? What does a creature with eyes all over his body look like? That's not the point. The point is, the I am is there. And the only fitting response when you understand who the I am is, is to bow before him and say, everything I have is yours because you're at the center of everything. Hallowed be your name. See, suddenly perspective changes from me thinking this universe is about me and how I fit. To realize, no, it's about him. And as I put God the great I am who I am in his place. Suddenly I realize how I fit because I belong to him. See, what it does is it then shapes us, forms us, not only in our perspective, but also in our worship as we understand that this name is worthy of worship. And then it becomes uncomfortable because hallowed be your name is you are sacred and ultimate. And I want that to be true for the universe. I want it to be true for me. But is it? Is it true for me? Is it true for you? What is getting our worship? 
So you think, oh, no, 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 it's, it's him. It's, it's the I am. Is it? Is it things that are good, but start to take his place? Maybe it's the exams we're about to take. Maybe it's what other people think of us. Maybe it's our job, our career. Maybe it's our family. Maybe it's our past. Maybe it's our hopes for the future. Is it that that actually, if we're truthful, is, to, is actually getting our heart? If we're truthful, is the one thing that's at the very center of our lives, the thing that sits on the throne. If we're honest, everything else revolves. Is that? And this moment, that perspective of, no, you, I am who I am, is at the center of everything. I now choose to put you back where you should be. I choose to say, I don't want to worship these other things because in face of who you are, uncreated, self-sufficient, source of all, forever loving, they pale into insignificance. I pale into insignificance. Because you and you alone are worthy of all of my heart, all of my satisfaction, all of my joy. Because you're everything. See, what happens is that this moment of worthy worship then causes us to say, actually, individually and together, we are invited to burning bush and revelation throne room moments daily. That as we pray, hallowed be your name, it means that wherever we are, I don't know what it is, maybe it's in your bedroom, in your lounge, in your workplace, at the bus stop, becomes a moment as you declare that, suddenly the burning bush is there. Where God reveals himself and says, hey, I am who I am. In this place, it's sacred. It's the throne room moment. The throne room moment of I'm sat at my desk. Hallowed be your name. At the very core of this office, at the very core of this building site, at the very core of this hospital, this, this school, my recovery, is you, God, on your throne. Far above everyone and everything else. And in this moment, suddenly, the throne room that is eternally there comes and dwells in this space. Hallowed be your name. But not just individually, corporately, that when we gather like this, we don't do worship because it's like, oh yeah, we gather together, then let's sing some songs because we do that. Then after we've sung some songs, we'll share some news and then we'll look at the Bible. That's the pattern of things. No, we come and whenever we gather together, we say, hallowed be your name. Because we realize that in this moment as we gather, we gather around the burning bush, the throne room that's eternally there. I say, you are above everything else. Our perspective changes from our current circumstances being pulled up by others to say, hey, we're not alone, we belong together to this eternal Father who is the I am who I am. And he's worthy of our worship. Therefore, we're formed in prayer. We're formed in prayer, which means hallowed be your name becomes a daily cause call to pause and to center. To use very familiar language, to have that moment daily where we pause and say, God, I recognize who you are. Hallowed be your name. The I am who I am. 
And as I now pause and recognize you, I center the whole of who I am on you. And say, you and you alone are worthy of everything of me. So how will you respond? I know how I'm going to respond. But how are you going to respond with this? Because the point isn't that we say, all right, yeah, we've done the father one. That, that was quite good, wasn't it? The hallowed be your name. That's kind of pretty demanding. Let's get to your kingdom come. No, no. How will you respond today? How will you respond this week to say, hallowed be your name? What is it we need to let go of? What is it that we need to remove from the throne? What is it that we've allowed to be some phony bush that's on fire? I say, that's not worthy of my worship. You got off. Just going to ask Andrew and Sarah and maybe some others to come up. And we're just going to finish by singing. I think it's the best way to do it, to sing and say, hallowed be your name. There are so many things that we could give ourselves to. So many things that we could center our lives on. But in this moment, I want us to say, how about we put those things aside and say, God, hallowed be your name. You are above everything else. I ask as I sing to you, I pray would you come and take preeminence in me in order that it would change my perspective.